John Pye was a police investigator in England, I believe the 70s. And one day he walked into the strangest, most bizarre case that he ever worked. He received a call about a man in his late 50s that was probably in trouble at best. And he walks into this man's room and finds him in his bed, just like he was sleeping, but totally dead. And while that was strange, what was stranger is the, the layout of the room around him. As he looked around, he found that this man had filled his, his bedroom with crosses and crucifixes all over the wall. There were bags of garlic all over the place. He had sprinkled salt on all of his furniture and even around his bed. And as the case began to be put into place and more details came to light, they found out that this man was deeply, deeply afraid of vampires. And he had built his entire life around keeping himself safe from vampires to the point where he would go to sleep every night with a clove of garlic resting on his lips until one night when in his sleep he opened his mouth, breathed in too deeply, and swallowed the garlic and suffocated and died. And that's a really strange way to go. That's a really bizarre way to die. But when you really think about it, it's a really sad way to die too. Because here you have a man who was so deeply afraid of something that we understand and that we know to be not real, something that's imaginary, something that's fictional. He was so afraid of something that couldn't harm him that he did something to himself that brought about not just physical harm, but brought about death. And there's a little bit of a reflective nature of that story in our lives. In fact, especially when it comes to the Christian life, sometimes we can be so scared of the imaginary. Sometimes we can be so scared of the theoretical or the distant that we can unintentionally cause harm to ourselves by trying to avoid it. For a long time, especially starting in about the 50s, but really since the beginning of our country, Christianity in America has often been marked by not so much Christian virtue, but an idea of American moralism, that we just have to do the right things and appear the right way. And so because of that, there's a constant fear of of legalism. Right? We've talked about that word as we've been looking through Galatians chapter 5. Legalism is this idea that we do the right things enough so that we can earn God's favor. And if we do enough good works, if we live the right way, if we do enough of the good things, then God will somehow like us more or love us more, we'll find more of his favor. And we don't want to be caught in legalism. There's a lot of stuff in Scripture about legalism and Pharisees, and we don't want to be that. And so sometimes we revolt so hard against this idea of legalism that we don't like talking about what it means to be good and to do good and to do good works. Because if we're afraid that we emphasize this idea of good works, then somehow we could fall into this landslide of legalism. But being good... And doing good works are things that are commanded in Scripture. We see that goodness is a result of salvation. That goodness is a sign of freedom. That goodness is, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, a fruit of the Spirit. And so because of that, to risk turning away from goodness out of fear or some sort of strange sense of grace-based piety robs us of a gift that Christ died to give us. And so it should be one of the things that marks who we are as a follower of Jesus. 
And so as we're going to see this morning, as we look at this fruit of the Spirit that Paul calls goodness, goodness itself doesn't save us. But salvation, when we come to faith in Christ, makes us good. And so in response to that, we should strive to do good and to be good and to do good works for the glory of God. And so as we have over the past few weeks, as we've been looking at these fruit of the Spirit individually, we're going to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. But then our passage of scripture today is going to be rooted out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 26. And so I'm going to read both of those passages here. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 26. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to, good, to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing Near. And we'll stop there at verse 25. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your goodness. God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That we receive salvation not based on what we do, but what you've done for us. God, we also thank you that you don't leave us where you find us. That you restore us, that you make us new. And that you call us on a path to do good works, to do good things in our world, to show your goodness to the world around us. And so as we talk about this beautiful thing that you gave us in goodness today, this fruit of the Spirit... May you inspire our hearts to seek after what is good, to love what is good, and to do what is good, all for your glory and the good of our neighbors. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look at three aspects of goodness this morning, and by the end of it, the three points are going to form a sentence. And so the first part of this that we see in this passage of scripture is that we were made good by good. That if we're in Christ, that you have been made good by good. I have, I have a, a history of not knowing what to wear to things. I never really know how to read a room very well. Thomas, quit nodding your head. Like, I, I understand. I, don't, I never actually know what level of dress that I should have. And so I've been to funerals. And, I, you know, Loganville funerals look different sometimes than funerals other places. You'll see people in jeans and polo. And so I usually try to just split the difference. I'll wear nice pants and a nice shirt, but maybe not a full suit. And I've showed up to funerals like that where everyone is in very nice clothes and felt horridly out of place. I've been to weddings where I'm really underdressed, which is, again, weird because you'd feel like a pastor would know how to dress on these occasions. 
but I don't because this is how I'm dressed today. And so I don't know how to elevate that a lot of times. And then the one time that I did, I was the first wedding that I was ever the officiant of, we, I was getting ready to go to the rehearsal dinner, and I'd been to a few rehearsal dinners before, and so I knew they're not usually as formal as the wedding, but sometimes they're formal, and so I thought I'm preaching this wedding, so I'm going to look good for this wedding, and so I put on some nice pants. I don't wear a coat, but I wear nice pants, and I wear a vest and the tie and the whole thing. It's in the middle of the summer, and it's outside, but I'm going to do this because I know I should look formal, and I walk in, and my friend, who is going to be the groom in this wedding, walks up to me in his oversized Falcons jersey, basketball shorts, and a pair of Jordans, and so yet again, I didn't fit in, and it's really hard to be comfortable it's really hard to be confident in a place where you don't feel like you belong, where you don't feel like you fit in, where you don't feel like you should be there. And so the writer of Hebrews here, when he starts at the beginning of this passage, you're saying, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, how in the world could the writer of Hebrews tell us to have confidence somewhere where we shouldn't be? Because if we look at the whole scope of Scripture, if we see what it looks like to be in the presence of God, it's not an easy thing to walk into. Moses, who was this man that, that loved God in a way that it's really just not seen anywhere else inside of Scripture, someone who was called a friend of God, who spoke face to face with God, when he had an opportunity to see God, God made him hide behind some rocks. And said, I'm going to tell you when you can look, because if you see too much of me, it's going to wreck you. It's going to destroy you. We see a really horrifying scene with the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, where they're carrying it down the road, and it starts to fall. And one guy, just meaning well, reaches up to push it back. But the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was resting, was so holy and so good that he just drops dead on the spot. In the temple and in the tabernacle as well, there was a curtain separating the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the presence of God was dwelling, and it was really serious business to go inside of it. Only one guy, one time a year, could go in, and before he could go in, before this high priest would make his way into the Holy of Holies, he would wash himself and confess his sins and offer sacrifices and go through all of this ritual to be able to be in the right place to go into the presence of God. Because the presence of God is a dangerous place for sinners to find themselves in. Because God is, is holy. When we use the word good, God is good. That goodness finds its definition in God. And he is so good and so set apart and so righteous that any sin in his presence just can't stand before him. And so where could this confidence possibly come from that the writer of Hebrews tells us to have as we draw into something as scary and humbling and awesome as the presence of God? He continues. So since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, To enter into the holy place, much like the high priest, to enter into the presence of God, we have to be good. And that doesn't mean that we simply have to behave or that we simply have to do good things, that we, to the core of who we are, have to be good. And the problem is, the Bible says that none of us meet that criteria. It says that there's no one good, there's no one righteous, there's no one that seeks after God, that in the core of who we are, goodness is not one of those things that describes us. 
But then Jesus enters the picture. And in Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul says, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're in the season that we call epiphany in the life of the church. And the season of epiphany reminds us of the manifestation of Jesus in the world. That Jesus entered the world to bring the glory of God into the world and show himself to all the world so that all the world would have the opportunity for salvation. It's a time when we remember that Christ came to save the Jewish people and the Gentiles alike to bring us all if through confession of sin and repentance into a relationship with him. And he came to show the world the goodness of God. And he did that, as Paul says, by coming in to save us, not based on the works and the things that we can do, but based on his righteousness according to his mercy. And the result of that force is that he washes us clean by regeneration, by making us new, and by the renewal through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the goodness of God incarnate. And he stepped into the world to do for us what we couldn't do. To give us something that we couldn't earn and that we couldn't take on our own. And he did that through his flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews says that we draw in with that confidence because of the blood of Christ and because of his flesh. Because of the things that we participate in when we take the communion meal, when we drink the cup and eat the bread, we're reminded that Christ was broken, that his body was broken for us, and that he shed his blood so that we could have this access. And we even see a picture of that in the crucifixion story. Because as Jesus is dying on the cross, we see the picture of the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Through the brokenness and the tearing of Christ, the the veil in the temple was torn. So now we have this unbridled access into the presence of God. And the result of that, verse 22 says, so that we can draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And when it comes to this idea of goodness, we see that the work of Christ through his death and resurrection is twofold for anyone who trusts in him. On one side, it says that we're sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And this language of sprinkling is what the priests would do with the blood of a sacrifice is they would sprinkle it out over the altar. And so we are in turn sprinkled by the blood of Christ for purification. That we are made clean from our evil conscience. That the thing that's deep inside of us, all the guilt and all the shame, all of that is washed away. But then he continues to say that we're washed by pure water. And this imagery of baptism that reminds us that as Christ was laid down in the grave, that this same kind of burial washes over our physical bodies and cleanses us as well. That Jesus saves us inside and out. He had a really harsh interaction with some scribes and Pharisees once. And these, again, these were the the religious guys. These were the leaders. These were the people who everyone looked to as an example of righteousness and goodness. But he looked at him and he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. 
The outside is nice, the outside is pretty, but the, the inside is, is dead and awful and messy and ruined. He says, first you need to clean what's inside, so then the outside will be clean. And that's what he does for us in salvation. Jesus comes in when we trust him for salvation and makes us clean from the inside out, so that there's nothing that hinders us from coming into the holy place of God. So when we trust in Jesus for that salvation, we can come before a good and holy and righteous God, knowing that because of Jesus, he no longer sees our sin, but he calls us good because he's remade us through Christ. Not by our own works, again, not by our own goodness, but by his. Not by our efforts, but by his grace. When it comes to being a Christian, we talk about a lot of the things that Christ does for us, but it it feels weird to say that Christ has made us good because it sounds somehow braggadocious, but it doesn't mean that he has made us better than other people. It means that he has gone inside of us and taken the old and made it new, that he's taken the guilt and he's taken the shame and he's removed that. So when he sees us, he doesn't see that guilt. He doesn't see that burden. He doesn't see that sin or that shame, but he sees the righteousness of Christ that was given given to us through the work that Jesus did. He changes our identity and he calls us to confidently come into his presence as we saw over the past couple weeks where we can call him Abba Father, where we can have this intimate and personal relationship with the God who created us. But the trick and the balance to this is to remember why we're called good in the sight of God. This is a prompt to humility, not to pride. This is a prompt to praise, not superiority, because as the writer of Hebrews says, as does does Paul and Titus, it's not based on us. It's not based on our works. It's not based on what we do, but what Christ did in our place. But we do have to remember that if you're in Christ, that he has not only made us new, but he has called us good, and that's cause to worship. Augustine, the, the, one of the fathers of the church, saw in Genesis chapter 1 a representation of salvation as the days of creation were laid out. And we can see a lot of shadows of salvation and creation because we see on day one, God created the light and created the day and the night. And at the end of that day, he called it good. And on day two of creation, God separated the sky and the sea. And then he saw that it was good. And then God separated the water from the land. At the end of that day, he saw that it was good. And on and on and on through the days of creation, God saw the work that he had made. And again and again, he called it good. And now we find ourselves on the eighth day of creation, so to speak. When God brings Jesus from the tomb and his resurrection, that that the writers of the scriptures call Jesus the first fruit of new creation, and he's bringing new life into the world, and as he saves us, he's recreating us. And so once again, every time someone comes to faith in Christ, God is speaking light into darkness. He's speaking life into death. He's speaking freedom into captivity, and he does it, and as he does it, he sees us, and he calls us Good, And he declares us good because of the work of creation that he's done in our lives. And so we were made good by good to do good. We were made good by good to do good. There are a lot of thoughts on what Christianity is and isn't. 
But as we look at Scripture, we find that following Christ isn't just about having a certain philosophy, and it's not a guide to have a better life. We see on one hand that we aren't saved by works, that it's not about doing the best that you can, so one day at the end of the world, God will weigh your good stuff and bad stuff, and hopefully you'll win out. That's not how salvation works, that it comes by grace through faith, that it's a gift of God that we can't earn, but he gives to us so freely But grace also doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. The writer of Hebrews tells us to hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering. And this faith, this confession that we cling to, is a grace-initiated, identity-changing force given by Christ that sets us free and it makes us new, not simply to one day go to heaven when we die, but so that through our lives and through what Christ has called us to do and through our good works, we can reveal a little bit of heaven on earth here and now. That we can be ambassadors of Christ. That we can be citizens of heaven, showing the world what it looks like to be made new by the grace and the mercy of of God. In verse 24, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The result of this salvation is love and good works. And as we've seen with every single fruit of the Spirit so far, with, of course, love, with joy, with peace, with kindness and patience, all of these things are spurred on and motivated and founded on love. And it's been a really weird thing that's happened because, again, we're looking at so many different places as we talk about each of these fruit of the Spirit. With every passage of Scripture that I end up preaching from to illustrate these fruits that that God has given us, Love is always somewhere in the picture. And I haven't been hunting down passages that talk about joy and love or kindness and love or patience and love. But those things always go together because as we've seen time and time again, the core foundation of Christianity is love. That God loved us before we loved him. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. That it was love that took Christ to the cross to offer himself on behalf of our sin. That it was love that brought him from the grave. And that it's love that saves us and sustains us. And so as Christians, love has to be the foundation of who we are and what we do. And then it gives birth, it gives life to all of these other fruit of the Spirit. And so it makes sense that the writer of Hebrews would connect this idea of love and good works. And then love, as we love one another, as we love Christ, as we love the world around us, should, as it motivates us to kindness, like we saw last week, should motivate us to doing good in our world. This goodness that Jesus gives us through salvation is not meant to remain potential. It's not meant to remain something that stays inside of us. It's not just an identity that we hold, but it's something that's meant to be put to work. You get the question a lot. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? And for me, it would be flying. And since I have the microphone, for all of us today, it's going to be flying. You might want other powers. You don't get other powers because I get to make that determination for us. And so if you want super strength, no super strength. If you want invisibility, you're creepy. So we're all going to fly today. And so if we had the power to fly, if we never had to feel the weight of our bodies on our knees again as we walk and take forever to get from place to place, 
if we could fly anywhere we want to go and see things from the same perspective as the birds, if we could do that and we had that freedom, and if you're afraid of heights, that would be taken away for you too. If we had that total freedom to be able to soar all the time, would we ever want to walk again? The stigma that we can have, especially in Protestant churches, that emphasizing doing good as followers of Christ, that emphasizing good works is somehow anti-grace, so often hinders us from partaking in one of the greatest gifts that we've ever been given. Something that Paul calls a fruit of the Spirit, and he continues to call in the book of Ephesians one of the reasons why we were created. In Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, as Paul's talking about the gospel, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, Paul is reminding us very clearly that good works don't save you, but that you are saved to good works. That you can't do enough things to earn God's favor because that would be about us. And salvation's not about us. It's about a God who loves us so much that saves us even though we don't deserve it. But he still has a plan and a purpose for us. So he says it's not by your own works so that you can't boast, but you are his workmanship. You were created by Christ Jesus, the same God who spoke life into the universe, created you in your mother's womb, and then recreates you through the power of salvation. And he created you for good works. And these are good works that he's prepared for you before the foundations of the world. These good works that we're called to do are things that God has carefully prepared for each and every one of us. That we're supposed to walk in those things. And so as you remember that God has made you good through Christ, remember also that he has set you free to do good works. Not out of obligation and not out of law. That's what Paul was coming down on the Galatian church about. They wanted to do these things to find some sort of extra help in their relationship with God. They wanted to do these things out of obligation or because they felt like they had to. But we're told here that we're set free to do these good works. That we're able to do it out of love and passion and kindness and all of those other things. Not out of obligation or law, but we're free to do them. And so just like we're free to be kind and to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to be kind to those who we know and those who we don't know, to our friends and family, we're also called and freed to be agents of good in the world and to do good works daily in our lives. Because we were made good by good to do good together. We were made good by good to do good together. Peer pressure makes us do really strange things. And that's something that you hear talked about a lot with kids, with high school students, middle school students. You have whole seminars about peer pressure and videos of bad kids in leather jackets getting you to do bad things. But it's weird that peer pressure doesn't really stop when you become an adult. It just changes a little bit. And so one of the, the core sources of peer pressure in my life, he's not here today, but is David Kelly. David Kelly has convinced me to do all kinds of weird things. So David's played hockey his whole life. I've never played hockey a day in my life. But David wanted somebody to play hockey with, and so he convinced me to go buy hockey equipment. 
And so I don't even know how it happened, but I find myself about two years ago in Play It Again Sports spending money on skates and a hockey stick, and we go to the roller rink and find that I can't skate anymore because I'm 30 and heavier than when I was 15 and don't know how to do it, and my feet don't work the way. My ankles were very tired, and I don't know how to hold a stick while I skate because I've never done that, and so that was a giant waste of money. But then he also constantly convinces me to eat at all of these strange Asian buffets. And I, I like Chinese food. I, I like Japanese food okay. I like certain types of sushi. I like that. But if something calls itself an Asian buffet, that's a big place. Asia is a large, dare I say, the largest continent on our planet. And if you can't narrow your food choice down to one or two countries in the world's largest continent, there's a problem there. And I know that deep within my soul. And yet we pass these things and I just, he just speaks to me. I'm like, you know what? That is probably worth another shot. And one of them fed me raw tilapia because I was eating it thinking it was just sashimi, but I was a new person to raw fish eating. And you're apparently very much not supposed to eat it. And so it could have killed me, but he just, he whispers in my ear. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good idea. I should do that. There's something about people speaking with each other. And we can, when we come together, we can do things that maybe we never thought we could. Sometimes, again, that is very much a peer pressure in a negative sense, like you think about when you're in high school or middle school. But there's also a really positive influence of peer pressure, especially when it comes in the life of the church. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. And as iron, gets, as iron sharpens iron, it gets sharp no matter how it really feels about it. And living out goodness can be hard. There's all kinds of external pressure to, to not care about goodness or to make your own goodness and it doesn't matter how what you do affects anybody else or what your morality is as long as you have some sort of personal code and so we downplay scripture we downplay what God calls us to do we downplay the goodness that Jesus has given us but there's also internal pressure to not do what's good In Galatians 5, we talked about that for a couple weeks when Paul made this distinction between the work of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit And he tells us that there's something inside of us, something that's not quite finished being saved yet, that's constantly trying to pull us in a direction away from what's good and away from what Christ wants us to do. And so I can't overstate the importance of church in every aspect of our lives, but especially when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit and especially when it comes to goodness. One of the things that that you'll see as you read through the fruit of the Spirit is that there are going to be some things that you might be naturally inclined to. So you might be naturally inclined to be kind, but maybe you're not naturally inclined to be self-controlled. Maybe you're naturally inclined to love, but you're not naturally inclined to be patient. But the amazing thing about the church is that God brings people together, whether it's here, if we're talking specifically about redeeming grace and the small little church that we have here, or just the church with a capital C all over the world, God brings people together from different backgrounds, from different places, with different skill sets and different giftednesses, and he calls us to come together and to help one another, and to be there for one another, and to care for one another, and to sharpen one another, and here in Hebrews, He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
And I'm going to ask this question to you because I had to ask it to me when I was preparing the sermon. When's the last time that you considered how to stir someone up to, good lo- to love and to good works? I can't remember the last time that I was just waking up on a Wednesday morning that I thought, how can I get Drew to love people and to do good works? What ways am I going to get Michelle to, to wake up today and think I'm going to do good works and love? Like, how am I going to stir up my church and my people to good works and, and to love and all these things? The answer is I probably haven't ever thought that way. And if you, maybe you're like me and that thought has never crossed your mind where you think, how am I going to use my life today to stir somebody else up to love and to good works? There are a lot of times when I might wake up and say, how am I going to love people today? Or how am I going to do good works today? Or what are we going to do as a church to reach out to our community? But when it comes to something as specific as saying, consider how we're going to stir one another up to love and good works, I imagine it's something that we don't do very often. And as we've seen again time and time through this discussion on the fruit of the spirits, the fruit of the spirit requires premeditation. It requires intentionality. Because these are things that aren't natural part of our lives. It's not natural to be kind and to love your enemies. That doesn't make sense. That's not natural. That's not normal. And in the same way, neither is goodness. And so we have to put some thought into be able to do the things that God has called us to do. And so as a church, we should be thinking constantly. We should be thinking about it a lot. How can I stir my brothers and sisters in Christ up to love and to do good works? How am I going to use my life in such a way that I can sharpen those around me to love other people and to do good works in their world? And am I going to be paying attention when other people are doing the same thing for me, when other people are trying to stir me up to love and to do good works? We need to be thinking about it, and then we have to do it. And then we have to show up. Verse 25, he continues to say, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. A lot of times we can talk about this verse. You hear it a lot, when, especially when pastors are trying to guilt people into coming to church. <laughs> well, brother, let us not neglect the, the coming together is, is the habit of some because we don't want to be the some. So we need to, I really need to see you in church on Sunday. And there is certainly merit to being in church on Sundays, but that's not where this passage stops. Because he says, not neglecting to meet together as we're stirring one another up to love and to good works. And that comes to Sunday, but he says that we should do it more and more as we see the day drawing near. That we should not only be concerned with coming together as the church on Sundays, but that we should be invested in one another's lives, loving each other and stirring one another up to good works regularly and constantly, not only in the lives of the people of our church, but of all the Christians in our lives, so that we can encourage them to do good and to love as Christ has loved us, but also so that we can be encouraged to do good, and then so that we can go out and to do good together. Christianity has never been designed to be an individualistic sport because then it would all be about when I feel like it and when I don't. And to be completely honest, especially these last two weeks, I don't feel like being kind very often, and I certainly don't care about being good very often. And so I need people in my life who are going to spur me on to do that and encourage me to do that. And then hopefully I'll be able to do the same for others. And then we get to go out and to do that together. But the reality is, is we can't stir up if we don't show up. 
We can't be this part of the Christian life if we're not meeting together on Sunday mornings, of course, because this is the easiest time to do it because we've got a set time. You're from 1030 till around about 1145, depending on how long I talk that day. But we've got this time reserved for one another. But also we need to be active parts in one another's lives because we were made good by good to do good together. And it's a result of the gospel. And if you're here and, and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, and it sounds just like I've been speaking to Christians a lot today, I, I have. But the gospel message is inside of that. Because we're told that, again, none of us can earn the goodness of God, that coming to church can't make us a Christian, that doing enough good things can't make us a Christian, that giving to enough charities or being really nice, none of that is enough to make us a Christian because we're held back by, by sin. But Christ loved us so much, and God so loved the world, that in, in his mercy and his grace and the abundance of his kindness, Jesus stepped into the world and offered himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross and rose again from the grave. And we're told that if you trust in Christ, if you believe in Christ for salvation and repent of your sins, then, then you are new. That the old has passed and the new has come. That you don't have to do anything to earn that or grab a hold of that. That he does it for you. That you don't have to make yourself good, that Christ does that on our behalf. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ before, but you want to know more about what that looks like, then please come and talk with me after the service. You can talk with David in the back. You can talk with any of our church leaders, really, about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you're here and you trust in Jesus for salvation, then you have to remember constantly that Christ has set you free. That he has saved us by his grace, not by our works. But he's not only called us good, but also he's called us to go out and to do good in our world. To live out our salvation by doing good works. So last week I had you make a list of ways that you could be kind as you go through your day-to-day life. Kind to your friends, kind to your family, kind to your enemies, kind to strangers, because we're talking about the importance of premeditated kindness, of planning out how we're going to live out the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to continue that list. What are some ways that you can live out the goodness that Christ has given you? What are some ways that you can do good works in the world, do good works in the community, do good works in the church, do good works in the place that you work, in your family, in all the places you go? How can you practice the salvation that Jesus has given you? And as you do, remember that if you're in Christ, he has called you good by his love and his mercy through his work on the cross so that you can draw near to God with confidence And so that you can go out into your world doing good for the sake of the gospel.